All right, some of you love that turn and greet. Some of you can't wait for it to be over. I get that. Uh, but we're glad that you're here. In front of you is this blue card. If you would like to let us know that you're here today, um, this is a way for you to indicate uh, just to touch with us who you are. Is there a way we can pray for you? There's a place on this to put prayer requests, and we pray for you each week when we get these. This is also a way for you to take another step. So if you would be interested in baptism, which is coming up two weeks from today, this would be a good card to fill out and say, hey, I'd like to be baptized. That baptism class is coming, um, I think, on the 9th, next Sunday, and then in our services on the 16th, we'll have baptism. Also, on the afternoon of the 16th, we'll have membership class. So if you've been around Calvary and would like to join or find out about joining, Go to the class. You don't have to join, but you can find out what Calvary's all about, and we'd be happy to have you for that class. This card will give you the means by which to let us know about that. And then, uh, guys, don't forget, on the 21st and 22nd, 23rd is the men's retreat. If you have not signed up, this would be a good day to do that. Just get online, or you can go to the cafe and sign up. Even the blue card would let us know. We're taking about 150 men. There are about 40 spots left. So don't get left behind on that. Um, that is going to be a great getaway for us, right? Yep. Yeah. Are you going? Maybe. maybe. <laughs> you can't say yes and then say, well, maybe I'll be there. Fine. I expect you to be there now. All right. You have a Bible. There's one in front of you. Luke chapter 7 is our chapter today. Many of you were able to read it this week. Chapter 7, reading chapter a week. Oh, disappointment now. Maybe you're just unresponsive, but we're going to read each chapter each week before you come in here. This is a fantastic chapter of illustrating chapter 6. Remember, we're in this book of Luke because it's good news for all people. And when the angel came to Mary and Joseph to announce to them the birth of Jesus, these are the familiar words that the angel said in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. What is the good news? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The good news is that God sent His Son into the world to be a Savior for people who acknowledged that they were sinners and needed to be forgiven. That pronouncement came into a culture that was built up on self-righteousness and the reluctance to admit that you had anything wrong with you. And the tendency to puff yourself up with your own self-righteousness so that you could say, I am better than someone else. It is into that world, which is not unlike our own, that the angel made a pronouncement, behold, I bring you good news of a great joy for all people. Now the unfolding of the gospel of Luke is the repeated teaching of Jesus that the kingdom has come and that you may enter into the kingdom no matter where you are 
as long as that you understand you need the King and Savior, Jesus. And in order for that to happen, you, you remember from last week that you must acknowledge, if you look at chapter 6 for a minute, that you are, um, in verse 20, poor in spirit. This is a criteria for entering the kingdom. You must be poor in spirit. You must be hungry for righteousness. There must be some contrite sense in your soul that you are estranged from God apart from Christ and you need to be forgiven. So blessed are those who weep now. And blessed are you when people will hate you and scourge you on account of Jesus. That, that the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave last week are all the ways that are the markers of a person who knows the King and is going to enter into the kingdom. I, I hate my sin and I feel unworthy but I love my enemy, and I do good to them, and I bless them who persecute me. These are marks of people in the kingdom, and I'm merciful because God is merciful. When others are around me and they need something, I'm, I'm merciful to them. Jesus said, blessed are you. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And it isn't enough just to say Lord to Jesus, but to say Lord to Jesus and to do the things that he says. These are all the marks of a true disciple, someone who's in the kingdom. Now, that was last week, but I love the way Luke, who is a historian, records chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, which go, you know what, before we put it on the screen. Let me just read the section. Luke chapter 7, um, 1 through 10. And after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of his people, chapter 6, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick to the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you the truth, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to understand this text and why it happens here and how it will shape our life. We invite the teaching of the Holy Spirit to us in these moments together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now verse 1 and 2, right after he had finished teaching chapter 6, 
in the hearing of all the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion who had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. This is coming right out of the teaching of chapter 6 in order to give an illustration of who is the one who is poor in spirit, who is hungry for righteousness, who is seen to be one who is contrite in spirit. He's going to be a marker of the one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. And it turns out to be none other than a centurion. A centurion. You might think that right after the teaching, it's illustrated by a great Jewish man, but probably a Roman centurion who was a soldier. Centurion simply came to be known as someone who was a captain of a hundred soldiers. And there were a lot of them around. William Barclay in his uh, commentary cites... Uh, an ancient writer who says that the qualifications of a centurion were that they must not be so much seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready and able to hold their ground and die at their posts if necessary. A centurion was an officer a distinguished person who not only was brave in battle, but had the leadership skills and strength of character to lead a hundred soldiers into battle. He was one who had to be organized, a leader, able to manage, able to look over the situation and assess it well and make the right decisions and tell people where to go. Typically, Roman centurions were hard-charging men without mercy. But this centurion is one of three centurions in the Bible who were clearly lovers of Jesus. And this is a man of great character. Um, each time we see a centurion, it's a person of character. Three times they're Christians. But he's going to illustrate really what it means to be one who is in the kingdom, someone who's poor in spirit, and there's an estimation of what this man was like from the elders there. Verse 3 goes on. When the centurion heard about Jesus, we just stop there for a second. So here's a man who's a soldier, and he's around Capernaum, and he's managing his affairs. But somehow he hears about Jesus. And by this time, very early in Jesus' ministry, the word about Jesus is spreading. And people are talking about Jesus so that someone who's not even a Jew, not at the synagogue, although this man was probably around the synagogue, hears about Jesus. It'll be in heaven that we find out who it was who told the centurion about Jesus. And there'll be a lot of stories in heaven, by the way, of who told you about Jesus and who told somebody else and who did you tell about Jesus and this is a beautiful picture of a centurion hearing about Jesus. So much so that he sent to Jesus elders of the Jews asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. Because you can see from the opening verse that he had a servant or a slave. It's the word doulos, who was sick to the point of death. But the mark 
uh, of verse 2 is that the centurion loved this young servant. Now, it wasn't uncommon to have a servant, sometimes called a slave, but ordinarily it was someone who was um, a, a young man that would be a servant, a slave to a, a soldier, a centurion, and sometimes they would be mistreated. But that's not the case here. This centurion loved this young boy. It actually, he uses another word in verse 6 uh, when he speaks of him, as we'll see, that he loved this one. So he sends the elders of the Jews to Jesus. Now that in and of itself is unusual, that the centurion would be so closely associated with Jewish leaders as a Roman soldier that he would call the Jewish leaders to go to Jesus. And when they went to Jesus, verse 4, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, hey, this centurion is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he's the one who built our synagogue. It's pretty weird that a hard soldier is close enough to Jewish leaders that he compels them to go to Jesus on his behalf to plead with Jesus to come and heal his servant. Now, the perspective of the Jewish elders is they go to Jesus and they say, this is a good guy, you should do this for him. He loves the nation Israel, and he built our synagogue for us. So the centurion was evidently a wealthy man and contributed a great amount of money to build the synagogue in Capernaum. And they go to Jesus and say, if there's anybody else in the world worthy of you to do something good for him, it's this centurion. Now, we just stop for a minute there. We get a sense about the elder of Israel and his philosophy of who God should love. You see it? This guy is worthy of your love because... He loves the nation Israel, and he gave a lot of money. And that was the idea. God will be good to good people. God will be good to the wealthy people. They're obviously wealthy because God has been good to them. And if they were poor, God wouldn't be good to them. They're poor for a reason. They're sick for a reason. They have disease for a reason. But this man is worthy for Jesus to love. See it? And that was the system into which Jesus came and said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The perspective of the leaders is, there's no good reason why you shouldn't love him. He'll be good for you. But God doesn't operate that way, does he? God doesn't look at the centurion and say, well, he did these good things, and therefore I will. But Jesus is on his way to his house anyway. But that was the system of the day. So verse 6, so Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent another group toward Jesus. Now, I can imagine this, that he sends the elders to Jesus, and Jesus says, all right, I'll come. And so they're coming, and probably the big crowd that was with them are all following, saying, what's Jesus going to do to this servant? And so they're coming closer to the house, and the centurion sends another entourage out to Jesus, this time his friends. And I think it might be possible that someone came to the centurion and said, Jesus is coming. We told them how great you are. 
And he sends another group of friends. And what he says to them is, I want you to tell Jesus, Lord, which in and of itself is an interesting title that the centurion gives to Jesus. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy for you to even come under my roof. I'm not worthy. And in this way, he portrays the heart of the Beatitudes. I'm not worthy for you to come even near me, even into my house. Sounds like Peter in the boat, when all the fish are in the boat. Lord, you are the Son of God. Get away from me. Or the tax collector praying with the Pharisee. I can't even look at God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And now the centurion says, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. I know who you are, and I know who I am. Now listen, these two perspectives of the elders of Israel saying he is worthy and the man saying I'm not worthy are important to see here because it is underscoring and illustrating all of the teaching of chapter 6. I'm not worthy. Verse 7 says, Therefore, because I'm not worthy, I didn't presume to even come to you, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. All you have to do is speak, and it will be done. I understand your divine authority. I understand you rule the world. I understand that you are the sovereign one. You have the rulership over life and death and health. You have absolute authority. You just speak and it will be so. Say the word to my servant. Because I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, come, and he comes. Say to another, do this, and he does it. And he simply underscores that he gets being under authority and attributes to Jesus that he's the sovereign one, in some sense under authority of something greater than being a human here, and he recognizes that in Jesus. I'm not worthy, and I get that you have authority. It's a really cool picture of a man who is understanding who he is and understanding who Jesus is. He assumed that Jesus was obviously a religious Jew, and he said, I, I don't want you to come into my house. It might not be right for you, but he saw something in Jesus. And he also saw that it wasn't necessary for Jesus to actually be present in order to do the miracle. You see that? You don't have to be here and do some funny, you know, anything here. You just stand over there, say the word, and it will be done because I know you're a man of authority. Listen, this is what we're seeing is that a true convert, this man, the centurion, saw in Jesus something that made him know himself correctly, and he knew something about Jesus, that Jesus had authority to do something simply with his word, and it would be done. Now, the amazing thing is that Jesus responds in this way. In verse 9, Jesus says, when I heard these things, he marveled at him. Marveled. He was astonished. It's only one of two times in the New Testament that it is said of Jesus that he was astonished. He was astonished that this man 
And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Faith that understood himself, that I'm not worthy, and understood the authority of Jesus, that he was worthy, and that he could do whatever he said, and that he believed that when Jesus spoke, it was worth obeying and submitting to and trusting in with all of his heart. You see it? This is the end of chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? The one who does what I say is like a man who builds his house on a rock, and when the storm comes, it will not be brought down. That's the centurion. I know who I am. I know who you are. And Jesus said, I have not seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. I wonder what it would take to amaze Jesus. It's hard to imagine. He's God, so it's hard to amaze him. And he knows everything. But again, a glimpse of Jesus' humanity here that he speaks out loud. I have, I'm, I'm astonished that a man who is a Roman soldier would have this kind of self-appraisal and this kind of deference to the Son of God that he would just believe Jesus from a distance could do this. The other time Jesus was astonished is in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And you know what he was astonished at? He was in Nazareth, in his hometown. And there were people in his hometown who said, who is this? Isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? Like he's a carpenter, right? And they disparaged Jesus. And Jesus said, prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And he couldn't do any miracles there because of their lack of belief. And it says Jesus was astonished at their lack of belief. But here he was astonished at his belief. Where are we? With what have we ever astonished Jesus? I thought about this week and thought, I've probably astonished Jesus by my rebellion. I've probably astonished Jesus by my lack of belief. How could I not believe him? But I want to be someone who says, Lord, if you speak it, I know it's true, and I, I believe it. There's a little episode in John, chapter 20, after the resurrection, in which Jesus talks with Thomas. And remember, Thomas said, I, I will not believe until I can see it with my own eyes. And he said to Thomas, after he came into the room with Thomas, after the resurrection, he said, you see my hands? Put your finger here. Put your hand in my side. And don't disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord, my God, now I believe. Let's read the last line together. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, this is who we are right here. We are just like the centurion in a sense. We're like Thomas. We, we've heard of Jesus, but we haven't seen him do his things. We've heard his word and heard what he said. But will we believe? We are in the exact same place in a sense of the centurion to say, 
I know who I am. I know who you are. This episode in Luke chapter 7 is meant for us to see exactly that Jesus is the king, that what he preached in chapter 6 is fulfilled in the centurion. There are bookend stories to chapter 7. And this one we look at a little more detail. But will you look over with me at the end of chapter 7 to see another glimpse that will help us get ready for communion this morning? Remember, the king has come and he's announcing good news for all people. It is amazing that the first person in chapter 7 after the Sermon on the Mount is a Roman centurion, but his heart was right. The last story in chapter 7 really begins in verse 38 when a Pharisee asked Jesus to come and eat with him, and he did. In verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, a prostitute, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then wiped his feet with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now, this is an unusual scene, isn't it? But oftentimes, in the day, if there was a party, a, a banquet in a home, people would sneak in and watch. This woman goes right up to Jesus and does this incredible, hum, uh, humble act of adoration. When the Pharisee, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Euphemism for an immoral woman. And Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> that would have been a moment, wouldn't it? But he says, say it. And you get the smugness, say it. Say it to me. You see, the, the suffocating self-justification is there. Say it to me. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, the money lender canceled the debt of both. Which one will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, you, are, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. This is what I would underline. Just watch this. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has not ceased to wet my feet with her tears and wipe them. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with anointment. This was customary. So the, the Pharisee who invites Jesus in is rude to him, discourteous in an uncommon kind of way. But this woman is broken before him, weeping and Jesus says to her, verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins. Wow. He goes right to the issue because he's a savior for all people. 
not just for the disciples, not just for the centurion, but for this woman broken in immorality, your sins are forgiven, which are many. He who loves is who he was forgiven little loves little. And he said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. Everybody at the table began to say among themselves, Who is this that even he can forgive sins? And then he said to the woman again, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Listen, these two bookends in the chapter 7 are meant to say good news for all people. And here's the criteria I am not worthy. You are the authoritative one worthy of worship. One says, just say the word and I know what you say will happen. The other gets on her knees before Jesus and pours out her spirit. It is obviously that she had already been forgiven much, which is why she was worshiping him in this, in this humble way. It wasn't that she did that that her sins were forgiven. Her sins were forgiven, so she did that. See the difference? And Jesus confirms to her something I would like to say to you. If you came to church today, and we're going to celebrate communion, you need to know that your sins are forgiven. All of them. And they cannot be forgiven by a self-righteousness that suffocates a sense of humility before God. What God desires is a broken and contrite spirit, which is displayed in both of these characters in the story, which is the illustration of the whole Sermon on the Mount. I am poor, I'm impoverished, I'm bankrupt without Jesus. I have nothing to bring, but I wholly cling to Jesus, and I know that he will forgive my sins completely because of what he did on the cross. Do you know that all your sins are forgiven through Jesus? Do you know that? If you know that, then I want to encourage you to come and eat this bread and drink this cup today in a way that would say, like the woman weeping before Jesus, I'm so thankful that my sins are forgiven. Or like the strong leader soldier would say, Lord, I know you said it, Whoever believes in the Son of Man has eternal life and has passed from death to life. And I believe that. And I, I trust in you as unworthy as I am. And then when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, you show forth that the Lord died for you, that He's your Savior. This is a holy moment for the church. We don't enter into it unadvisedly. We examine our hearts and say, Lord, I, I turn away from my sin. I embrace Jesus anew, and I thank you that you died for all of my sins. Let's bow our heads together. If you're helping to serve, would you come? I think we all should just take a moment together and just reflect on these two individuals whom Jesus blessed, one with answered prayer, one with the affirmation of the forgiveness of sins because they came as we all must come to Jesus.
We aren't worthy. We're broken sinners. But the mercy of God can overcome our sin. If you're here today and you're not sure that God could forgive you, I pray the Holy Spirit will help you to see in these two episodes and in your own life, there is no sin that you have committed that is outside the grace and mercy of Jesus. Call upon Him right where you are. If you're a Christian and you've been away from Jesus, you've been in sin this week, be penitent. Repent of that. Turn back to Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Holy Father, here we are, Your church, to renew our covenant with Christ, the new covenant, in which we have forgiveness through Your death, the blood of your sacrifice. And we want to come and say we're not worthy apart from your grace. And we thank you that we are fully cleansed by that grace. So let us eat with joy, reverence, and thanksgiving in a worthy way for your glory, Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen.